Welcome to Thinking Like a Lawyer with your hosts, Ellie Mistal and Joe Patrice, talking about legal news and pop culture, all while thinking like a lawyer, here on Legal Talk Network. Hello, welcome to another edition of Thinking Like a Lawyer. I'm Joe Patrice from Above the Law, and with me, as always, though not physically in the same room, and uh, it breaks my heart to have him so far away, is Ellie Mistal. Hi, I'm Ellie. I'm sitting here in my snowshoes and my uh, puffy vest, trying to beat the cold. Yeah, you being uh, you being all suburban now, you don't uh, you don't come in when the snow gets in the way. Yeah, I don't, and that that really that that's a that, let's get right into what what's grinding my gears on this morning. When it snows, like it did on the East Coast uh, this past week, I don't know when you're listening to it, but as it surely will snow again on the East Coast at some point after the point where you've listened to this podcast, people should not have to come into work. They just they just shouldn't. It's dangerous. It's bad. It's inefficient. We live in the future, Joe. We live in the future where this is where there's there's this thing called the internet. There's this thing called Wi-Fi. Unless your job is literally the oldest profession, you can pretty much do everything you have to do online. And you know what? I think that probably even applies to the oldest profession at this point. It it probably does to that one. Uh, it you do live in some sort of a weird anti-blue-collar bubble where you assume that people can do retail jobs or manufacturing jobs from their homes, which is not at all true. Retail jobs. Who needs to buy anything when it snows like I this? I mean, they need to buy snow. snow shovels, dude. Who needs to buy... Who needs to buy stuff? They need to Who needs to buy stuff when there's two feet... Well, you... No, 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 no. You buy the snow shovels before it snows. Yes. Once the snow is on the ground, you should be able to stay no, home. No you one should is be able to stay home. The people at Target should be able to stay home. The people who work for GM should stay, should be able to stay home because nobody needs to buy a car on the day that it snows. That that's not how an economy works. You're so because you like money, Joe. You're willing to put lives in, at risk. I'm not that's even. All you're I'm not even about that liking your money. I'm, desperate I'm, love for consumer goods is willing to put lives at risk. That's all you're saying. Yes. Well, the empty sophistry aside, no, that's not at all what I'm saying. What I am, however, saying is that things need to be built and done, and some of those jobs require people to be at their jobs. For that, you know. Put that aside. Emergency workers, doctors, these are all things also that can't be done online. People do need to get out. That is said, I am fully in support of your position that people who are lawyers, bloggers, various kinds of tech workers, the non-essential presence folks in the world should absolutely be able to not be in their offices. That makes sense to me. It took me two and a half hours to drive into work yesterday. Two and a half hours. And I drove my mom and my wife because I was trying to be a nice husband and son. And I swear to God, you know how like when uh, when people die of hypothermia, like right before they like strip off all their clothes and run around naked in the snow that's killing them. Like that's actually what I want to do on my way into work yesterday to just 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 stop the car, take off my clothes and run outside. Well, that all didn't make car. any sense to me. We live in a city with actual public transit and even in your, you know wild suburban outliers you still have metro trains there was zero reason for you to be driving i never understood it <laughs> i'm i'm not gonna that was a mistake i'm not gonna yeah. lie i should no i mean i should have taken the train i know you could have just asked me i would have helped you out i'd have told you oh, what whatever. to do you like i always you get do. to work by like there's like a 
dog sled team of Brooklyn hipsters that like mush you into work every day. Hey, I just I just walk to the subway station that is literally outside my apartment, and then I come into the office that is right underneath it. It's amazing. It's it's like our tax dollars do something. It's amazing. <laughs> I don't have a good segue for joe's desire to kill people in the snow to drones but i will say that if you did have your own drone you probably had an excellent bird's eye view of the destruction on the east coast during this past oh if you had a drone you would have flown it in the office yesterday and stayed at home which would have been creepy (laughs) to have like a little picture of like an ipad picture of you floating in front of all of us terrifying whenever i got angry i would just make the uh just make the propellers flap yeah, you wouldn't have been able to type with the drone necessarily. Well, you don't really write anything anyway. <laughs> Let's bring in our guest before I have to murder yeah, you. Yeah, fair enough. Well, you can't because you're so far away unless drones come, which brings <laughs> us to our segue. Uh, our guest today is Stephen Hogan. He's an attorney with Osley McMullen. And the key to why he's here is he is a preeminent expert in drone law. Uh, he's written the book literally written the book on it, The Drone Revolution, How Robotic Aviation Will Change the World. He's the host of the Drone Law Today podcast, which is at dronelawtoday.com. He knows he knows what's up when it comes to the flying angels of death that will destroy all of humanity. So we decided we'd bring him in to talk about drones. Welcome. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Ellie. And uh, let, let's reframe a little bit and call them the flying angels of big data, which will revolutionize any business you can think of. How about that? All right. There we go. That's that's exactly what Skynet wants you to say. And, and here's a winter, <laughs> and here's a wintertime segue for you. I think I've got the solution to your snow problems. Are you ready? I'm ready. Move to Florida. Oh, yes. You're in Tallahassee, right? <laughs> yeah. Tallahassee, Florida, man. It's like, this is about as far north as I will ever get. You know, when it, whenever I see that ungodly weather that y'all get up there, I just think, man, that that is not fit for human habitation. That's a credible answer. I mean, granted, living where I live, there have been approximately zero times when an alligator has jumped out of my toilet to bite my ass. So I'm not sure I can fully go with you there. <laughs> but I take your point. So, Steve, uh, tell me a little bit more about the big data aspect, because I think that's that's one of the more interesting things about your take. Most people view drones as just the newest and most convenient way to spy on your neighbor's wife. You seem to think they have a higher purpose than that. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, it's always interesting to me that anytime drones come up in almost any conversation, the example that you just gave is one of two examples that come up. It's always, oh, somebody's going to spy on spy on my wife. Or the other one is somebody's going to take pictures of my daughter by the swimming pool. And this is said by even people that don't have daughters or swimming pools. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's it's like something deep in, in, in the zeitgeist. But um, here here's what the real value proposition is with drone technology. And this is important to understand because – when you see people flying around like uh, FPV drones, there's a really uh, neat uh, video that's been making the rounds just recently of uh, a drone racing league that was racing around these small, uh, very small drone devices around um, the Dolphins football stadium. They'd set up a like a, a race course and you could see like first person view of like you were flying through it. You know, that's one thing that people think of with drones. The other thing they think of is, you know, just the hobbyist that's out there, you know, flying around the public 
park and then they get to, oh, I don't want this thing spying on me. That is a sideshow. That is a sideshow. That's not even the value proposition here. The value proposition is this. What you have is a confluence of three different things that have literally never existed before in human history. Those thing, three things are, number one, stable, small, light, autonomous, semi-autonomous aerial platforms that are relatively inexpensive that you can get from uh, – you can get a good system for $500 and you can get a professional system for about $2,000. I mean if you want to go nuts and spend 20 you can too uh, if you're doing some, some high-grade commercial work. So that's one piece. Or bombing ISIS. <laughs> oh, hush. <laughs> I mean Terminator drones are kind of a different game. Right, right. Let's, that's completely off the table, all right? So you've got these small autonomous platforms that are easy to fly. You don't have to have a lot of expertise to fly them, right? And you also have very light, very capable, um, and very sensitive sensor technology that's just getting better and better and better. And that sensor can be a camera. That sensor can be an infrared or multispectral uh, imaging device. And then you have a computer cloud backend where you can gather this data, for example, in a precision agriculture context, when you are uh, flying over a farmer's field and seeing what plants are stressed using uh, infrared or other multispectral imaging, and you can take that data and knit it together into a valuable information product to the end user, whether that end user customer is an agricultural uh, enterprise that's you know, wanting to information on its crops, whether it's a building company that wants on-demand 3D as-built surveys for their buildings or just about anything you can think of. And uh, you mentioned the book earlier. I have, I have a whole page that lists tons of potential commercial operations. Really, it's only limited by the imagination. And also, but it's but it's also limited by regulation. Let let, let me uh, let me put the the thinking like a lawyer hat on for a second. Um, one look, I'm a I'm a Democrat. I'm a liberal. I love regulation. It's usually my first my go to thing um, for the for all of life's problems. Uh, the FAA's current posture, the Federal uh, Aviation Administration um, current posture, is that it can regulate essentially every bit of airspace above your blade of grass. <laughs> I and mean, that that's pretty much their the scope of their power. How does how is that reasonable in a modern context where where now as you put as you point out we have these lightweight semi-autonomous easily affordable drones that can swoop in right above my blade, blade of grass. How is that within the purview of what the FAA should be able to regulate as opposed to what I should be able to regulate as a private homeowner potentially with a shotgun? <laughs> all right, let's bracket the shotgun issue, all right? Let's bracket that and set it aside for a moment. Um, but what you have just put your finger on is the most important legal issue, I think, in this whole legal genre, and I'm going to call it drone law. I'm not afraid of the D word, okay? <laughs> okay. Use the word drone. We've been, we've been using it. To be precise, you would say unmanned aircraft system, and if you're talking about the small ones, which we kind of are, you would call it an SUAS or a small unmanned aircraft system. So just for clarity's sake, when we use the word drone, or at least when I do, I mean the small ones, okay? Now, so back to your back to the issue that you raise. You know, it has been settled. The thing that's been settled are the legal issues relative to ownership of airspace above real property, okay? That body of case law came about way back when, when planes were new, 
wind uh, and people were trying to figure out, well, can I stop these things from coming over my property? It's the old, um, it's the old idea that, you know, if you owned this plot of land, you owned it all the way up to heaven and all the way down to hell, right? Exactly. Those issues were grappled with a generation ago. And the outcome of all that case law, and there is case law going, you know, some very weird factual cases that you'll find in, uh, in law school texts is that um, these devices are necessary. So you get essentially the glide path up, what the plane needs to get up. You get the highway in the sky where they need to fly. And then you get the glide path down. And essentially there's no property rights, if you will, that can stop that, right? Which is why LaGuardia is allowed to exist. Uh, well, essentially, yes. I mean, and, there, and there's cases uh, grappling with those issues. But here's the thing. All of that case law and all of those regulations that are on the books and all of the statutes that direct the FAA as to what they can regulate all presume that an aircraft is something with a person in it. Yep. Yep. That means that it has to be kind of big. And that means it's going to have a gas engine and it's going to ha cause some real damage if it falls out of the sky. People are going to die one way or the other. But with drones, here the FAA has been given a completely different technological beast, all right, that the FAA classifies as an aircraft. And therefore, all the regulations that apply to aircraft, all the case law that's grown up around what you can and can't do with aircraft apply, according to the FAA, to drones. So this idea, this conception has come out that the FAA uh, asserts jurisdiction, if you will, all the way down to the blade of grass, right? And that's never mattered really when you're talking about manned aircraft. It means something completely different like you mentioned, when you have something that can hover 10 feet off the ground and maybe that's its entire, maybe it doesn't go any higher. So all of that old case law is essentially you can crumple it up in a ball and throw it over your shoulder. It's persuasive authority now and everything's everything old is new again. What part of this involves, and I think you, you hit the nail around the head there, what part of this also involves the FAA doing what organizations, what institutions do, uh, which is grabbing whatever power it can have. Is it not possible that there's an organization or government entity that's in a better position to regulate these small drones rather than the FAA, which, as you say, are primarily concerned with passenger aircraft? You know, that's a really interesting point. And um, I think that's something that's going to be grappled with going forward. And I'll answer that uh, in a couple ways. First, I'll say that the FAA is the main regulator of airspace. So I don't see anybody else uh, regulating what constitutes a safe drone flight. Okay. But you also have states, state law that, and that's, that's the repository of property rights, right? That's exactly. state law stuff. And these, this whole idea of, you know, how much you own above your property, that is a collision. That is a direct collision in a preemption context between the FAA's assertion of authority and traditional state law property rights. So there's one collision. Another collision, and I don't know that this is really a collision, it's more of a traffic jam, if you will, is that this these drones, I mean, it's not just an aircraft, it's also an information gathering device. It's also, as um, one of my co-travelers in this drone law space by the name of Elizabeth Wharton, um, with the, uh, I wanna say the Hallbooth Smith, law firm in Atlanta, Georgia. She was a podcast guest and she writes um, about this stuff. And she sees drones as part of the internet of things, which also includes driverless cars, 
in other robotics and other autonomous vehicles. So these drones are a part of that. And what does that implicate? That implicates the FCC uh, w with regard to way, um, bandwidth, you know, wavelengths of, uh, of how these things are communicating. It implicates the FTC, which uh, deals with data breach and data storage and data privacy and that sort of thing. And drone companies that manufacture these things also have to be aware that the Department of State has a hand in this because uh, the autopilots and the gyroscopes and even some of the some of the sensors that you put on these things may implicate uh, a set of regulations called ITAR, which and I forget exactly what that acronym stands for, but it's essentially an arms control uh, set of regulations from the Department of State. And if that wasn't enough, the Department of Commerce has export laws that, depending on what you put on one of these devices, you uh, you may fall within one of the export laws, even if you don't send one of these overseas. For instance, if you hire an, an information technology person from a different country to work in your company and you have a certain sensor loadout, just because you have the IT person from another country in your company, if they see the schematics, you may have a deemed export and now you've got to deal with those regulations. Joe, I want to open up some space on my left here and, and see if he'll take the bait. Um, drone law is one of the few areas of law where I generally favor a federalist approach. I, I, I honestly don't think that the best way to handle this is by a strong centralized authority. I think that our, our, our understandings of this must needs be different in Texas versus the Manhattan. Oh, no, no, absolutely not. No, this abs should totally be a federal thing. It, it comes to what we were just talking about with it being a big data being its primary application. It needs to be something that is largely harmonized across the country so that it can be used and exploited to the maximum of its ability. I, I hear both of you, and I think they're both valid positions uh, that could be taken from a policy standpoint. I'll tell you what's actually happening right now. What's actually happening is that the FAA has gone so slowly with implementing drone regulations. And by the way, I'm not slamming the FAA. I'm not, frankly, I'm not really criticizing the FAA. It's a hard thing. And sometimes I come across as an FAA apologist, frankly. But the fact is that they've missed the deadlines that Congress set for them in the 2012 FAA Modernization Reform Act that directed them to write the regs that are applicable to this technology, right? So right. they have been slow. And in the absence of clear federal guidelines, what has been happening is that state houses, okay, the legislatures of almost all 50 states have grappled with this at one point or another, are trying to pass laws to regulate drones. And what, I, what I've tried to make clear to the drone community and what I write on like LinkedIn Pulse, that's where most of my writing is, and on the Drone Law Today podcast, you know, check it out on iTunes. We're also in Stitcher and your favorite podcast <laughs> player. <laughs> um, I got to get in that plug. But what I, what I try to explain to the industry at large, and, and my audience tends to be people that are in the industry or lawyers that are trying to advise people that are in the industry, is that... The FAA will have everything to say about what a safe drone flight is, right? But states, with their traditional authority, you know, the, the, to deal with everything that's not delegated to the federal government, will have almost everything to say about what is and is not permissible in the context of an otherwise safe flight. So when we talk about privacy questions, I think that's a state issue. I do not think that that's a federal issue. And the FAA agrees. 
See, that's terrifying because Rhode Island is way too small. Like, doesn't the drone just take off and all of a sudden it's not in Rhode Island anymore? <laughs> I get Alaska. They can have their own rules. The same thing used to happen with, with Cadillacs, right? Like, as soon as you start it up, you're in another state. Um, Steve, let me, ask you, let me ask you what happens, because um, you're, you're focusing on, on, as you put it, otherwise safe flight. Um, what happens when these things go bad? If I know one thing about technology is that often it breaks and blows up in your face. Um, and I'm thinking about this specifically in the context of tort reform and um, in the context of using drones for business. Um, I, I think the, the, the easiest example uh, for most people is Amazon's purported fantastical uh, future where they're going to drone strike packages upon you from the sky. Um what happens when the Amazon drone that's being uh, that's owned by Amazon that's being piloted by an independent contractor, um, yada yada yada, th- flies the drone into your window and cuts your face off? Who do I get to sue? Well, first, I hope uh, that if something like that happens in Florida, your first call would be to Stephen M. Hogan of the Osley M. Cullen Law Firm, <laughs> <laughs> who can then advise you of your rights. <laughs> but. Uh, it, There's there's two prongs to answering that question, and before I get to those two prongs, let me say one thing about Amazon. You know, when that announcement came out, and it was about two years ago from where we sit right now, um, that Amazon was considering doing or was serious about doing uh, drone package deliveries. You know, if you if you go back and see exactly when that press release hit, it hit right before Cyber Monday on that particular December. And if you go back, you know, yeah, check that- Google check me, you'll find out that that's true. And when I saw that hit, I'm like, nah, come on. I mean, that's, that's ridiculous. That's, that's a joke, right? Well, it's not a joke because, uh, what I've, what I found in that the following year, they hired Amazon hired a top drone lawyer in the space. And, um, I'll, I'll refrain from naming names, but you know, he was a friend and co-traveler. And as soon as Amazon hired him, I thought, oh man, they're serious. And then they hired another guy that I knew. It's like, oh man, they are double serious because they're hiring good people. And, you know, I'm not a, a tech, I'm not really geeking out on the technology. I mean, that's just not my strength. You know, I see it and I stand in awe, but I'm in but I, cu- I couldn't tell you how it works. So I have no opinions on exactly how their prototype that they announced recently uh, will actually work. But I would take them seriously. I wouldn't, I wouldn't consider it to be a fantastical future in the, in, in the sense that it's vaporware because I don't think it's vaporware. So let I me just say that yeah. about Amazon. But, makes a lot of sense. I yeah, yeah, and uh, here, back to the two prongs that answer your question. The first prong that I think is going to be important in this context is insurance. There, the, I mean, the drone law world right now is its own version of the Wild West. But frankly, the drone insurance world is even wilder. I mean, drone insurance companies are writing policies left and right. Some understand the technology better than others. And I've had, um, oh gosh, his name is, no, Chris Proudlove from Global Aerospace came on the Drone Law Today podcast and talked about his company's approach. And that they that is a serious insurance company that they insure you know Fortune 500 companies that are getting drone fleets to experiment with. So they are serious and they know their, they know their stuff. So companies like that uh, are pricing the risk correctly, I think, or you would assume they would. But other companies are writing policies, and perhaps other agents are writing policies that are pretty fast and loose that don't 
require the drone operator to have the proper um, uh, exemption from the FAA in order to operate commercially. And we should talk about that before this podcast is over about how you fly commercially legally because it's 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 important. So <laughs> that insurance side, some of these policies that are getting written are probably going to be litigated. Um, once insurance companies that say that they're paying on them all uh, right now decide to stop paying on them. So insurance is going to be a big piece of that. The other piece of that, frankly, is going to be tort cases. It's going to be the plaintiff's bar um, sussing these things out and finding and suing everybody and then seeing who has the deepest pocket. And that's really how it's gonna how it's gonna play out. I'm just I I, I live in fear of, of a situation where you a guy is is injured has significant me- medical bills and he can't sue Amazon, um, but he can sue the you know fifteen dollars an hour. Sorry, I'm if Bernie wins fifteen dollars an hour. Uh, <laughs> A uh, drone operator guy um, who can't possibly cover his medical bills. Um, but you you were talking about flying safely. I've got a three year old. I figure as soon as he's able to beat Rainbow Course on Mario Kart Eight um, at about a hundred CCs, that he'll be ready for a drone. Um, what do I got to do to get him legally able to uh, play with his new toy? Well, this is a good distinction right now because right now there are essentially three categories of drone regulation depending on how you use them. And I will just say before we get into it that differing regulatory regimes based on the intent of the user is kind of insane, right? I mean the one – like you could have three flights for three different purposes and we'll talk about all three in a minute. But assume that the flight is exactly the same. Different regulatory regimes would apply to each flight and um, that is crazy because Mm. when we're really talking about safety, we should, you know, safe should be safe, right? Safe should be legal. Well, sometimes safe is not legal based on the intent of the user. This sounds like really good government work right now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's it's complicated lawyer stuff, you know, so I've been heartened by the fact that other lawyers are jumping into this and trying to spread the word and make it as clear as possible. That's the point of me getting that book out there last year. And by the way, your listeners can get a free copy of my book, The Drone Revolution, at dronelawtoday.com forward slash book. That's dronelawtoday.com forward slash book and you can get a free download. Or it's on Amazon if you want a hard copy or a Kindle. But anyway, so what are these three categories that uh, that apply. The first category is recreational use. And that, uh, Ellie would be what your, what your son would be using. Let's hope. Let's hope. (laughs) Yeah. Let's hope. Let's hope. Right. You know, unless he has a pilot's license, he shouldn't be flying it for commercial purposes. And I don't think they let three-year-olds get a pilot's license yet. (laughs) So let's just assume it's for, um, recreational use. What you would do is go to the FAA's website and, um, I don't have the site right in front of me, but if you Google FAA drone registration, you'll find it. And right, the FAA um, has opened up an online registration process where you register your drone. And when you register your drone, uh, you are doing that for hobbyist purposes, recreational purposes. And then you get a number from the FAA that you can then put on your drone. That's an N number. So it identifies who owns the drone. That would be you, right? Mm-hmm. And. Along with that registration, the FAA gives you um, a, a pretty easy, easy to follow set of instructions on how to fly safely. And generally, it's be safe. You know, stay under 400 feet, stay away from airports, and don't fly too close to people. That's really what it comes down to. So recreational flying is is pretty open. Now, commercial flying is a second regulatory bucket, if you will. 
this is much more restrictive. And if you are making any sort of profit in any sort of way, not even profit, any revenue in any sort of way connected to a drone operation, then you qualify as a commercial operation according to the FAA. That's even so far as to, hey, I took a, a video on my drone and I put it up on YouTube and I'm getting uh, YouTube ad revenue of like $2 a month. Really? That would, that would qualify as commercial use, just the P2P. Yeah, but I love that both of us jumped in on that. Like, whoa, really? Well, yes, really. In fact, the FAA had um, – uh, they stopped this policy, but for a time, and I want to say last year in 2015 this was happening, FAA uh, um, personnel were trolling YouTube, looking for drone videos, and sending cease and desist letters to every uh, – you know, to anybody that they could find the identity of saying – that's a commercial use of drones. Don't do it. Wow. So, you know, I'm not just, you know, talking into the air. That that actually Since happened. the FAA has solved every other problem in the world. <laughs> well, <laughs> to their credit, they stopped that. You know, that wasn't the best use of FAA personnel time. So they're not doing that anymore to my knowledge. But it shows you the extent to which the FAA um, broadly construes the term commercial use. It's also just a, just as an aside, it's also just a commentary on how much of our law enforcement these, this day and age involves a government regulator trolling YouTube looking for things. <laughs> That's where we are in America right now. Now, remember, the FAA is civil. They're not going to go criminal on anybody. Um, Sorry, go on. At, at least in these enforcement uh, situations. You know, if you want to come right back around to shooting them out with a shotgun, we can do that. And, and that has a criminal element. But let's bracket that again for a moment. So if you want to do a commercial operation, the FAA says that you have to comply with all the aviation regulations that apply to aircraft. You see the problem. Yep. All the aircraft regulations deal with manned aircraft. So when you have a drone and you're trying to follow the manned aircraft aviation uh, regulations, well, you know, where's the cockpit? Where does the pilot sit, right? How much am I allowed to drink before flying my drone? Well, none, because you're the pilot in command. That's my problem. <laughs> We're on the same page. Sure. So, so that's, that's the problem, right? So the solution to this problem is that the FAA is offering an exemption to the regulations. And the exemption is called a Section 333 exemption. The Section 333 refers to a section in the FAA Modernization Reform Act of 2012, and this is all in the book if you want to geek out on it. And what that section says is that the FAA can make case-by-case -case determinations that certain flights would be safe in the national airspace system without a final rule having been promulgated. And since the FAA still has not promulgated a final rule, probably will not do so until next year at the earliest, 2017, then you need an exemption to the regulations in order to fly. And once you get your exemption, that exemption is essentially your set of airline or uh, aircraft regulations that your commercial operation has to adhere to. So that's how you fly commercially. And the third and final bucket of regulatory stuff would be <laughs> – public use or civil use of drones, and that would be government use. So law enforcement um, or even your property surveyor that wants to use it to make better maps of, you know, for your property tax rolls. Is, it, it, to do that, it's easier. You don't have to get a Section 333 exemption. You just need to file for what's called a COA, C-O-A. It's called a Certificate of Waiver Authorization, abbreviated C-O-A or COA. And that COA will allow a government operation to operate a drone as a, quote, public aircraft, end quote, all right? But it's limited to 
government purposes. So there is a limitation on what a government can do to the extent that public universities that would normally qualify as an entity to that could fly a public aircraft cannot use a COA as authority for training their students, tuition paying students on how to fly drones for that. Cause that according to the FAA is a commercial use. So they have to get a section 333. So those are the three buckets. Wow. It is amazing how, uh, how messed up and oh, not it's quite clear, clear it's just, it's, it's, the FAA it, has made it, this. It's kind of like, yeah, it's kind of like trying to unravel, you know, spaghetti on a plate and trying to find <laughs> the, the one that you want. And just how kind of detached it is from how kind of real people on the ground, no pun intended, are, are using these things. Um, the, the, the YouTube angle is, is shocking to me because that's, that's, half, the, that's half the goddamn point. <laughs> that's right. And, you know, it's interesting. Um, uh, I've, I've spoken about drone law a lot over the past few years, and uh, I'm going to go down to Orlando to speak to another group um, actually tomorrow. And uh, one slide, one, one graphic that I always put in my slide deck is a, an excerpt from an FAA document that purports to show the difference with, uh, between hobbyist use and commercial use, right? And hobbyist in, in this has several examples in a table and it's, it gets kind of absurd until you get to the bottom where on the left it says hobbyist use, flying a drone to take pictures of your garden because that brings you enjoyment. Okay. I'm paraphrasing, but that's essentially what it says. And then on the other side of the table, on the right, on the right hand, it says uh, a commercial use would be flying over to take a picture of your garden because you're trying to determine your crop yield because you want to go sell it for money. That's a commercial use and you need a special exemption. How do you like that? Wow. The flights are I, I, identical. It makes no sense. It makes no sense. From a logical I mean, standpoint, no, but you can understand, you know, if, if you if you follow the thread from the beginning, how the FAA got there. It's almost like dealing with the weight of past generations and you know, yeah, trying to fit this new technology into something it doesn't really that wasn't made for it. Yes, yeah, square peg, round hole sorts of situation. Can we can we end with this question of shooting? Um, here here here. Here's my example. Tell me why this is okay. If R two D two rolls up on my property, he is trespassing, and I am allowed to kick his little drone ass. But if R two D two hovers onto my property, I'm legally prohibited from doing anything to him. How does that make sense? <laughs> uh, you know, that that's an interesting point. And um, in fact, there is a law professor out of the University of Miami by the name of Michael Frumkin, who's written a paper that you can grab on SSRN called Self-Defense Against Robots and Drones that grapples with that exact issue. Of course, there's a law review paper on this. I'm going to get that. That's awesome. <laughs> you, you can either get it or you can listen to my uh, interview with him on the Drone Law Today podcast. He was one of my first live guests, if you will. So there's that, okay? And that is absolutely an issue that is going to be grappled with, you know, in the in the context of traditional state um, self-help doctrine, right? There's a tiger on my land. I want to protect myself from my tiger, right? I mean, right. we've all been there in law school. So that's, that's one answer. But the other answer is uh, assuming that R2-D2 shows up on your lawn in a U.S. jurisdiction – uh, you know, okay, let's just say R2 is inside the drone. Okay. So he's flying the thing like, like an X-wing. 
that is an aircraft for all purposes under the federal aviation statutes and regulations. And if you shoot an aircraft out of the air, guess what you just did? You shot it. Yeah, essentially, yes. You are now a felon, a U.S. felon, and you can go to jail for five years on up and pay about a quarter million dollars in fines. And if you want more about that, you can check out the podcast the, entitled Don't Shoot That Drone, where I talk more about that. And I've also got an article up on LinkedIn Pulse that goes in deep with, uh, with the regulations. And um, I, I think that's entitled uh, Don't Shoot That Drone, It's a Federal Crime. So it's easy to find on my LinkedIn profile. Well, all I can say is that if any drone shows up on my property trying to take pictures of my wife or my daughter that I don't have, they're going to get a load of my 350-pound fat black ass. That's what's going to happen for them. Put that on their YouTube page. The issue is I've seen Ellie try to jump, so <laughs> it's not... That drone can get out of range pretty quick. So, hey, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, remember, everybody, I mean, he, he's mentioned it already, but he's got a book, which you can download from his website. He's got a podcast. He's main, mentioned some of the key issues, which I think we're all going to go and listen to right now. Thank you so much. Uh, Ellie, do you have any uh, parting words? I, this is this is fascinating. I, I didn't yeah. I didn't know like 35 percent of of the words coming out of his mouth, man. That was amazing. Yeah. And actually, the, part of the idea for this podcast came up because Ellie wrote an article about drone law where he was just like, I'm sure there's somebody who knows the answer to these things. And uh, the answer is, yes, there is. And it's you. <laughs> <laughs> we try. We try. And I want to thank you all for uh, all the work that you've done over the years reporting on the legal industry, because frankly, when I was in law school, um, oh, so many years ago, knowing nothing about the legal industry other than uh, I wanted to get in it above the law was one of my main resources to learn what this industry was even about. So thank you all for the work that you've done over the years. Well, thank you. We I mean, more to Ellie. I, I'm, I'm the new guy. So. You probably missed a lot of me, but Ellie definitely was around. Pay it forward, man. All right. Yeah, no. Like yeah. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you all for listening. If you aren't subscribing, you should be subscribing. We're on all the various places for you to subscribe. We're writing on Above the Law, ATL Redline. We've got Twitter accounts. You could follow us literally all over the place. Ellie, do you want to complain about snow anymore or is this uh, or are you done? No, because watch next week. I'm going to complain about global warming. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's okay. <laughs> All right. With that, uh, we'll talk to you soon. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. You can also find us at AboveTheLaw.com, ATLRedline.com, iTunes, RSS, Twitter, and Facebook. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.